This is History 605, where we discuss everything from Crazy Horse to cyberspace. I'm Dr. Ben Jones, South Dakota State Historian and Director of the South Dakota State Historical Society. Welcome to the show. Today on History 605, we have Jennifer Raff. Jennifer is an Assistant Professor of Anthropology at the University of Kansas. Her research focuses on what she calls paleogenetics, She's written a fascinating book reusing a mix of genetics research, anthropology, archaeology, and linguistics to describe the state of scientific understanding of when humans came, first came to America. Uh, welcome to History 605, Jennifer. Thank you so much. I'm really happy to be here. Uh, the title of your book is Origins, A Genetic History of the Americas, uh, which is what kind of brought it up on my radar uh, recently. And you... Um, you go against what many of us uh, were taught in grade school about how American Indians came to the Americas. Uh, we were taught that um, that the current American Indians are descended from people who came across the Bering Strait and via what's known as the land bridge. Uh, but as more evidence has come to light, scholars are bringing more details uh, about the nature of how that worked. And no surprise, it's more complicated than that, and there are some uh, competing theories about uh, how all that worked. And your book uh, explains what those theories are and kind of gets into it. I wonder if you could just give us a little brief background on yourself and how you got interested in studying genetics in this fashion. Yeah, of course. Um, well, I started off wanting to be an archaeologist as a kid, as many children do. I uh -huh. just never gave up that dream. I was lucky. Um, as I was growing up, my mother went back to school uh, to get her degree in neuroscience. And for as long as I could remember, she, as, a, as a child, she was in school. Um, and so I grew up around universities and, and getting to sort of spend a lot of time in her lab and in the college libraries. And it just really in, uh, infused me with a love of biology as well as archaeology. And I couldn't really choose between those two those two things that I, I was obsessed with. Um, but along came a little movie called Jurassic Park, uh -huh. <laughs> which maybe dates me a bit. Um, but I suddenly realized, although, of course, we can't get DNA from dinosaurs, um, but I realized that ancient DNA was a possibility, that this, this was a field, that people, a tool that people were using to investigate the past. And... So I became determined to see if I could participate in that endeavor, and I have been very lucky in that um, my, the rest of my life, the path has kind of followed that, and I've been uh, sort of using genetics both from living peoples and from ancient individuals um, as a tool for understanding the history, histories, I should say, mm -hmm. of the Americas ever since. A few... Well, several months ago now, I read a book by the gentleman who first held the job I held, I hold now, Don Robinson. Uh, he wrote a book about the Dakota in 1906, uh, and he referenced a study done in 1866 about the what he called striking similarities of the Dakota language to certain Mongolian dialects. And this kind of reinforced a view that there's a connection between certain American Indians and certain uh, populations from Asia. Uh, linguistics then winds up being kind of one link. Uh, in this very old study, it doesn't reveal how all these groups came to America or when, but just that there's that tie. Uh, but now, with this, the research that you're doing, 
along with the histories that the tribes share, uh, there's more and more archaeology, anthropology, and now we can add genetics to that list of disciplines that seek to understand this. I wonder, um, Don Robinson repeats this, uh, uh, this theory as well, that uh, Native Americans came across the land bridge. Um, I'm wondering if you can kind of recapitulate that idea or describe that idea as, as you might have been taught in grade school about that, and then what people are thinking about it now. Yeah, um, it's a very long-standing idea, and um, I learned it not just in grade school, but also as an undergraduate, as I kind of describe in my book. Mm-hmm. Um, it wasn't until graduate school that I really heard an alternative to this idea. Um, but the, the prevailing model for Native American origins, according to archaeologists, for the longest time, was this, I guess right now we call it the Clovis First Theory. I don't think that um, that's what they called it at the time. Yeah. But it was this idea that, of course, the, the makers of the Clovis Techno Complex, this beautiful suite of um, stone tools that were um, made and, and characterized by the, of course, the beautiful bifacially flaked fluted um, uh, point, um, that those were the first peoples in the Americas and that they arrived very relatively late, relatively recently, about 13,000 years ago is kind of the more latest dating for that, um, mm-hmm. or 13,200 years ago. And that this, this migration um, was a very rapid one that took place from Siberia across the Bering Land Bridge, that people raced across it just in time to move down an ice-free corridor that had opened up between, uh, through the massive ice sheet that covered most of Canada. Um, and that these hunters um, were following the large American megafauna and moved very rapidly from North America through South America um, in, the, in the span of, I don't know, just a very, very short period of time. Um, and, you know, this was the model that, that captivated archaeology for, for decades in the 20th century. And it was so entrenched that any descent, any other sites that seemed to be older than Clovis were, were discounted. Um, and including, you know, this is, again, what I learned. I was, I was taught all of the, the failings of all these pre-Clovis candidates and how they were not correct. And this was a contaminated date or this was, or that was not real evidence of people. And it really wasn't um, until the acceptance of the Monteverde site in Chile that uh, by, by some prominent archaeologists that the, the cracks in this Clovis first hypothesis really um, became strong. And mm-hmm. genetics also, I think, played an important role in, in breaking down this idea by showing that the um, ancestors of present day Native Americans um, likely came here a lot earlier than, than 13,000 years ago. And of course, the dates we have now for this um, event are, are still in flux, but they seem to be getting older and older as more and more evidence comes out. And while it may not be commonly accepted, what's the oldest date that's kind of within the range of possibility? Oh, the oldest date is um, 150,000 years ago, about give or take. Um, hmm. And that is uh, the date from the Cerruti Mastodon site in California. Um, that one is 
quite controversial, but there are, you know, legitimate archaeologists who, who hold that this is a the earliest site of, um, of human occupation in the Americas. Well, it, it sounds like uh, one of the things you bring up in the book, too, is that there's, I don't know if waves is an appropriate term, but there's different phases of different migrations. And I was intrigued by your, your use of the term kelp highway. This, this idea of people coming across the Bering Strait and then kind of boating down is also something that was um, discussed by Don Robinson in, that, in his book 100 years ago, um, but probably not with, certainly not with the clarity that you bring to it. I wonder if you can describe what is the kelp highway and how does this migration work? Yeah, this is a much um, this is this is an idea. It certainly did not originate with me. In fact, mm-hmm. I would venture to say almost none of the ideas in this book <laughs> originated yeah. with me. But I just pulled them all together. Uh, but the kelp highway hypothesis is this idea that um, the distant ancestors of Native Americans were um, were adapted for maritime economy, and um, and they were probably living in Beringia for some extended period of time. Um, some proponents of this idea actually locate them to Japan originally. I don't myself see the evidence, the genetic evidence is supporting that. Mm-hmm. But the idea is that um, these were maritime adapted people who traveled along the West Coast by boat, um, and it would have been a much a, a route into the Americas past those ice sheets much earlier than an interior route uh, would have been possible. So the um, the coast, the West Coast, portions of the West Coast that were glaciated became um, open for travel beginning, I think the latest numbers show about 17,000 years ago, give or take. And that as people traveled down this this route, um, they would have been able to make use of all of the marine resources that were abundant, present in great abundance along the coasts, including kelp, from which the idea gets its name. And the proponents of this idea really believe or really note that marine environments are quite similar up and down the coast, and so it would have been pretty. Um, easy for people to to move rapidly because they were already uh, familiar with the plants and the animals um, as they would travel up and down the coast. They wouldn't have to learn incredibly new environments right. or ecologies. And so that facilitated the rapid travel, which certainly is consistent with what we see in the genetics record, where we see very, very, very rapid movement of people's um, supported by uh, ancient genomes showing close relationships between peoples of, say, Lagoa Santa in Brazil 10,000 years ago, um, as well as the uh, the child, the Anzic child, dating to 12,600 uh, years ago up in Montana, right? Um, mm. the, the fact that these peoples were closely related to one another suggests that there was quite a rapid movement um, into the Americas. And I am inclined to agree that um, travel by boat is probably the most likely way to get people moving that quickly. Sure. Sure. Um, can Take us back a little bit further then. What what are the groups that they're coming from in Asia? You, you spend some time yeah. in the chapter on that, and there's three or four different groups that kind of become the ancestors of those who've come to America. How? What are those groups? Who are they? And why are they uh, traveling? 
Yeah, it's it's quite complicated, right? Um, mm -hmm. Because I'm speaking about um, genetics and populations. I'm using that word with scare quotes around it. Yeah. <laughs> um, populations that are are identified genetically as uh, distinct from one another, but the degree to which they were um, actually culturally distinct, had different identities. These, you know, these are all. Uh, this is all quite controversial. We have no real knowledge of that. So, yeah. but that that caveat aside, um, when we look at complete genomes from present day uh, indigenous peoples and their ancestors, and analyze them all together, comparing them to genetic diversity present in other populations around the world, we can kind of derive um, this this scenario. And and Native Americans. Ultimately, um, their ancestors were related to two groups, uh, one found in East Asia, who would have been the ancestors of present-day East Asians. Um, they comprised the majority of Native American ancestry. Um, the other group is a group that we call uh, Paleo-Siberians uh, Paleo or Ancient North Eurasians, excuse me. Um, ancient North Eurasians have a, an archaeological presence up above the Arctic Circle at the Yana Rhinoceros Horn sites as early as 31,000 years ago. There were people living there in these really high latitudes um, year-round permanently, which wow. is really remarkable when you think about what the climate must have been like. They had these amazing adaptations. Um, at the site, the Malta site, um, in you know more central uh, um, more central Siberia, you, dating to 25,000 years ago, the people, the population that was there was directly ancestral to um, the Native American ancestors. And these two populations would have been ancestral and descendant from each other, right? So the Yana peoples gave rise to the Malta peoples, and they gave rise to this component of Native American ancestry. Hmm. And these two branches um, came together about 25 to, I don't know, I want to say maybe 26 to 20,000 years ago. There was some, and there's this period of isolation right around then this population underwent. Um, so we see no evidence for any gene flow after that uh, into this population. And it's really interesting because this isolation coincides with the peak of the, the global ice age, the last glacial maximum. Um, and so during this period of time, these peoples would have been contending with a very cold, a very dry um, environment and with limited plant and animal resources. And so the big question is, where were they during this time? So globally, about this time, you see populations moving into refugia around the world um, seeking out uh, areas where there were more abundant plants and animal resources, more fresh water. And it's likely that these ancestors may have done the same thing. The question is just, were they, where were they? Were they in East Asia? Um, I'm inclined to say no, because they would have encountered other groups of people there, and we see no evidence of any gene flow going on. And so mm. it tends to be when you have humans living near each other, they tend to have babies. Um, mm -hmm. And so I think that seems unlikely from a genetics perspective. But the other place they could have been, one of the other places they could have been, would have been um, the center of Beringia itself, which of course was this land connection. If they were in central southern Beringia along the southern coast, that would have been a relatively decent place to live 
based on paleoenvironmental reconstructions. And so that's kind of my current favored okay. idea of where this group might have been. Yeah, you bring up uh, Beringia as a place, and you make the point of the the land bridge itself is not so much a place that you kind of hustle across. It's a It was a place where people lived for thousands of years. Can you describe how that looks? It's kind of more than what is the state of Alaska and and the Bering Sea uncovered by ocean. What what uh, what kind of place was that? Um, yeah, so this area would have been, well, so Beringia still exists today. It's just okay. the central part that's underwater, of course. Um, so Beringia extends uh, quite far um, into Siberia and then on the other side quite far into Alaska, okay. um, as people who live there today can, can, can attest. Um, but, yeah, central southern Beringia would have it, – it was a really, really large place. So the, this land connection would have been twice the size of Texas mm. during the last glacial maximum. The southern coast uh, would have been warmer and wetter thanks to the proximity of ocean currents. Um, and so it would have had more animal and plant resources. Um, it would have had – there would have been waterfowl. There would have been marine resources. In fact, there's some idea that perhaps people developed maritime adaptations there mm-hmm. um, since they, they would have been so so abundant. Um, and it doesn't mean that people had to have only been there. So certainly during this period of isolation, we see the emergence of several genetically distinctive groups. Um, and these different branches may have emerged as the result of a population broadly distributed, um, you know, in multiple refugia across this this vast land area. Um, And if they had, you know, gene flow would still have been going on, but perhaps to a lesser extent. And that might be why we see this population structure emerge. Um, In this period of time, we see the emergence that, as we know of right now, at least three branches, three different groups of people. Um, one we refer to as the ancient Beringians. Um, it's a bit of a confusing name, <laughs> but uh, they they would have been they were the peoples who uh, lived in primarily Alaska at sites like the Trail Creek Cave site or the Upward Sun River site. Um, as far as we know, they don't have any present day descendants. We haven't found any genetic descendants of them yet. Mm. Um, but that could, that could always change. Mm-hmm. Um, another group is one we call unsampled population A. And we only know about this group because they left a genetic signature in the genomes of the present day peoples of Central America. So we kind of can only see them indirectly. And then the third branch are what um, uh, is referred to lately as ancestral Native Americans. And it is that group that moved south of the ice sheets and peopled the rest of the continents. Okay. Um, you, this brings up another point, too, that, that you made different people groups and so forth. And you point out in your book, it's hard to know where's the point at which one ancestral group becomes another. Um, and yeah. the answer to this, of course, has profound implications for who gets to say what archaeologists and scientists like you can do with uh, the ancient remains that are found and uh, so forth. Um, you're You're probably familiar with. In fact, I think in your book, you cite uh, Vine Deloria's book. Um, mm-hmm. He has He's a South Dakotan, and he wrote another book called uh, um, 
Custer Died for Your Sins, and he has a chapter title in there called Anthropologists and Other Friends, and he doesn't mean that in a nice <laughs> way. Um, mm-hmm. You addressed some of these issues uh, that's, that's occurred and was beginning to occur about the time Deloria was writing his books in the late 60s and early 70s. I was wondering if you could describe what um, NAGPRA is, or the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act, and kind of how it's employed today, because you bring it up in various parts of your book that I thought was good to see. And if you can kind of walk through for the audience what happens when somebody on federal lands or as a part of a federal project comes across something that might be back to one of these ancient peoples? Yeah, um, this is a really important topic. And I think that Vine Deloria has been, was one of the most um, important and impactful writers and cr- critics of anthropology. Um, and, it, and he is somebody who I think every anthropology student should read. Uh, mm-hmm. and, um, and also present day critics as well, because I think that there are some really fundamental issues uh, at play here that any non-native anthropologist or archaeologist needs to be to be uh, cognizant of. Um, when human remains are found and they're identified to be ancient, um, what is absolutely vital, and I, I got to preface this by saying I'm not a NAGPRA expert. Okay, <laughs> sure. What, uh, yeah, <laughs> I wish I were, because it's a very complicated, um, very complicated legislation in, in his practice. Um, what is vitally important is that uh, if there is a descendant tribe that's identified, a descendant community, that they then have the jurisdiction over what is done with those ancestral remains. Mm-hmm. And um this was a, as I read it, a very difficult uh, period of time when, when NAGPRA was first um, passed and implemented for anthropologists who really struggled with the implications of that. Um, and I think that a lot of scholars, of uh, uh, archaeologists and biological anthropologists, found it troubling and, and were concerned about whether or not research could ever be done um, mm-hmm. in the future. If this sovereignty over these ancestral remains was, you know, ceded to those who are to Native Americans um, who are descended from them. But I think that the fears of many, um, especially in my field, biological anthropologists, um, it turns out that NAGPRA ended up being, at least from my perspective, a very good thing for our discipline. It became, it, 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 it made clear the obligations that anthropologists have towards indigenous peoples. Um, I should say, correct myself and say non-native anthropologists, um, because of course there are many, well not many, but there are uh, a number of indigenous peoples who have chosen to go into these fields and have done incredibly good work. Um, But for non-native anthropologists like myself, recognizing the both moral and legal sovereignty that indigenous peoples have over their own ancestors' remains has in many ways provided a a good way to work and a good pathway forward. Um, I have found personally that much of my work has actually been empowered by NAGPRA, not stifled Mm -hmm. by it. Um, because tribes, I, I you know, I, I work with tribes. I feel that I do this work on their behest, at their behest. Um, I do it on their terms. If a tribe does not want me to do 
um, DNA studies of their ancestors, then that's their right to say that, and I respect it. Um, but I've also I've found in a number of cases that um, many tribes see genetics as another tool, a tool that could be useful to them. Mm-hmm. Um, if it is done, if that kind of research is done in a respectful way, in a way that their ancestors would have found appropriate, or at least they believe is appropriate for present-day community members. Um, and I think that we're approaching a new era in the field where this is becoming more and more common. It's unfortunately not universal. There are still, there's still research that's being done without um, tribal consultation. And legally, in some cases, it's acceptable to do that. Uh, I'm not sure I I think it's ethical (laughs) to do any research without uh, tribal support. But um, I found that the insights that we can gain from doing research cooperatively, um, geneticists, archaeologists, and traditional knowledge holders all working together, um, I think that it's, it's, it's a very powerful approach, and I hope to see more of that in the future. Yeah. Is there any other country that that has a similar law? For instance, if I can imagine that in Switzerland there are Roman ruins, and if somebody's doing, in Switzerland, archaeological research, and they come across something new, do they need to check in with the Italians? to, to mm, that's a really or, or do they question. just blaze away? I, I suspect that I they just blaze know. away. But. <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know the answer to that. I mean, I know it's certainly different in different countries, and that would be appropriate because, yeah. you know, there are different histories. But I, I do know that in many cases, a lot of the ethical frameworks that um, we paleogeneticists look to, at least those of us who work in the Americas, um, we look to uh, Australia and New Zealand and, and, and see the mm-hmm. kinds of work that they do um, that's engaged with uh, elders in in those indigenous communities. Um, And so a lot of times, a lot of the the ethical practices that uh, are advocated for here are derived from some of those frameworks. Right, right. You you make the point uh, toward the end of your book, human DNA is 99.9% identical, yet it's the 0.1%, as you say, that what we loosely call the environment that accounts for all the variation uh, and remarkable variation in things like outward appearance and so forth. We spend an awful lot of time talking about the differences, don't we? Um, and I just wonder, if what are the commonalities? And uh, then I guess I had another question, too, and you may want to take this first. Um, you mentioned the benefits and so forth that the tribes may seek to gain from the outcomes of your research. What can you List off some of those that tribes would gain by a greater understanding of the understanding the genetics of their ancestors. Yeah. Okay. Big questions. Mm-hmm. Um, <laughs> just I'll try and tackle the first one okay. first. Um, the commonalities. Uh, well, all humans share common ancestry, um, genetically speaking. Uh, from populations, ancient populations in Africa. Mm -hmm. And I think that this common genetic heritage can show us some really, really fascinating stories about our histories, how we um, have survived numerous climactic events, how we have adapted to many different environments around the world. Um, Even in our differences, the effects, for example, of natural selection in promoting um, the frequency of certain um, 
adapt, genetic adaptations to say high altitudes, right, um, mm-hmm. in, in in mountainous regions, even those are very very important and informative, um, and and show us what a resilient and remarkable species we are. Um, to answer the second question, the benefits of genetics research. Well, I think that you know genetics is a tool for telling stories and understanding the past. Um, And it can be done at many different scales. So my book focuses primarily on the the broad scale of, you know, the origins of people, the genetic origins of of Native Americans. But ancient DNA and contemporary DNA doesn't have to just be focused on these big, broad strokes. There are many questions that can be addressed with with DNA, um, ranging from are people who are, you know, if you're, you're talking about uh, genetics, ancient, ancient genetics, are people buried in the same grave related to one another? Um, how are, uh, how, what's the relationship between ancestry, uh, kinship, biological kinship, and mortuary practices? Are certain families treated in certain ways differently than others? Um, you know, you can get insights into some, some longstanding uh historical and archaeological questions on just an individual scale that way. We could even go and assess the genetic sex of an individual, if, if that is an important question to be asked. Um, in a slightly broader scale, one could use genetics to assess the relationships, genetic relationships between two ancient groups in, a pa- in the past, so two ancestral groups. Were they related to each other? Did they, did, was there gene flow between them, or did they stay separate? Um, genetics can be used as a tool to address the impact of European colonization. So you can actually model population size changes and in the past and say, see if the, um, the impact of European colonization was, was extremely variable in different places. Or mm-hmm. do we see, for example, very steep population crashes everywhere across the Americas um, and, and the degree of, of admixture? of uh, gene flow between Europeans and, and, um, and indigenous peoples. And then one can also use genetics. I don't do this, but one could use genetics also in, um, in a medical sense and to look at, uh, you know, the prevalence of certain uh, genetic variants in, in the past or in the present. That is also a, it, it is a powerful tool that can be used in all these different ways, mm-hmm. uh, both in the recent past, in the middle past, um, and then also in the very, very distant past. Um, but it is, you know, as it, it is a tool like anything else, it has, it has potential benefits and potential downsides. And one of the things that I try to get into in my book is how it has been and continues to be used. Um, in ways that are not so helpful to, to Native Americans, that um, there are ways in which genetics research can be harmful, or at least the, the, if it's done in a way that is not engaged mm-hmm. with, with um, tribes and, and according to their, their preferences and their wishes, it, can, it has a potential for causing harm. Um, and so I think that it's important to be frank about that. Okay. Jennifer, this has been a great conversation. I think that uh, your, your book really sheds a lot of light on some, I wouldn't call them myths, but maybe some misunderstandings that, that uh, part of your research and the research of um, a century more of archaeology and so forth in North America and South America have 
refined the notion of how the first Americans came here and the fascinating aspects of these different um, populations and uh, and what it can do even for medicine, modern medicine, as you just made the point at the end here. So uh, I've been speaking with Jennifer Raff, her book, Origins, A Genetic History of the Americas. Jennifer from the University of Kansas, thanks a lot for joining us today. Thank you so much. You're welcome. So thanks to our sponsor, the South Dakota Historical Society Foundation, and our partner, the South Dakota Public Broadcasting. But most importantly, thanks to you, the listener of this show. As always, if you like the show, please share it with friends and help us get the word out. The South Dakota Historical Society can be found on the web at history.sd.gov, and we'd appreciate you checking us out. Now go do some history. <laughs>